my management plan is to sell cows to and graze what I've got through the winter because you can't feed your way out of a drought. You just go broke feeding your way out of a drought. It, we're at a really weird time because cattle right now are record high pricing too. You know, it's like everybody's getting real greedy, right? We're trying to buy all this feed so we can feed our cows to to try to pinpoint when the market's gonna hit, hit its top. Nitrogen pollution in our water, dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, all due because of a lack of soil function and a lack of knowledge of it. This is Decentralized Radio. I'm Tristan. And I'm Ryan. The goal of this podcast is to help educate you on how to live your most optimal life. We will host industry expert guests to shed light on topics that matter. We are not gurus, rather two individuals who have had to pave their own path to health and vitality, independent of the centralized systems that plague modern society. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Decentralized Radio. Today, we have August Horseman on the line. How's it going, August? Pretty good. How are you guys? Good, good. This is our third podcast today, Ryan. How are you feeling? I'm, I'm excited. I'm good. I was, I was thinking I'd be like really wiped out, but I'm, I'm actually like on fire right now. Yeah, I just went kayaking for two hours in the strict... Wyoming sun. So I'm feeling good. I'm feeling regenerated. And yeah, this conversation's a little bit overdue. We uh, got the wreck from mutual friend Jake Stakes, uh, who's always the the critic and definitely listening to this. So shout yeah. out to Jake. Maybe one day we'll get him on the show and he's doing God's work of delivering, hand delivering beef, grass fed, 100% grass fed regenerative beef from folks like August across the United States. So check out Jake Stakes. But more importantly, we're here to talk about August and his beef and his story. So you grew up, well, sorry, where did you grow up? And then you moved to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, went to high school, right? This is where this started? Well, yeah. So I grew up born and raised St. Louis County. Um, where the house I'm in recording this from was the original farmhouse on my grandparents' farm that they purchased back in the 70s. So I'm actually, I actually live in the original house. I believe it was built in the 1890s is when the house was finished. Wow. So I live in an old house and uh, on my uh, grandparents' farm. So growing up, I uh, I came out to the farm, you know, every chance I could could. Um, my grandparents were school teachers in St. Louis from this area. So I'm in Owensville, Missouri. So they're both from this area. My grandpa Paul was actually born just about three or four farms over. So um so I guess kind of their kind of retirement plan was to to have a farm to mess around with. So that's where I'm at. It's it was originally started as a 200 acre farm, and then since then, it has grown into a thousand contiguous acres of grazing. That's a lot of land to look like work. Um, that's awesome. I mean, so my my background too is um, I'm not from I, I didn't grow up definitely in ranching or, or anything like that, but I grew up in Kansas, so I'm sort of familiar with like the landscape of of that part of the country. And there's just 
so much open land. And I think who was the last regenerative person we had on here, Tristan? Was that, was it, um, was it, uh, who was it? Do you remember? Well, we talked about it with AJ Richards, who's not a rancher himself, but we talked a lot about it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Because one of the things I'd like to ask is you were mentioning it's been pretty dry out there this season. I think you were mentioning last season too, pre-show. How do you sort of navigate those seasonal shifts and sort of like when, when things get harder, like what, what I guess to me, what I wonder about is like from a conventional standpoint where you're raising cattle on like, um, like corn and stuff like that throughout part of the year, when it comes to a regenerative perspective, when you have these same difficult weather patterns or, or seasons, what's the differences in how you manage that? Yeah. So I guess we're to lay it out where, you know, East central Missouri, we're at uh, kind of the very northern part of the Rockies, just or, uh, of the Ozarks. So we're real rocky, and we have a lot of timber. Um, the our county is like our ca- northern county line is the Missouri River. So we are. I mean, I don't. Uh, real shallow soils and stuff. So um, your question about management with weathering patterns. So this is our second really dry fall um, where our grasses on a growth curve, they start in the spring where it's a cool season. It's an introduced cool season dominant environment. So um, springtime grasses, you know, so it goes on a growth curve. So Spring, March, our grasses are growing up to the growth curve. And then about May, they start dropping down the growth curve. As we go through our, we call it a summer slump. Then we go into August, kind of we start back out of it with a fall growth curve, but it's not as high as our spring. So typically August, about September, you know, with those September rains and cooler evenings and stuff, we should be growing a pile of grass that we call stockpile. So we defer graze it, save it for winter grazing. So that this year and last year has been very, uh, hasn't been there. So um, management plans on mine, I typically graze, say about three acres to one cow with one bale of bought feed. Um it's not going to be that way just because how dry it is. Hay's very expensive in our part of the country because everybody else is droughted out. So my management plan is to sell cows to and graze what I've got through the winter because you can't feed your way out of a drought. You just go broke feeding your way out of a drought. So, yeah, I think that's. It's it's always fascinating to me to hear the the comparison between stocking density in like the Midwest or the East Coast to you know out here in the Mountain West. Of course, it's yeah. always yeah a lot higher in uh, yeah east of the the Rocky Mountains. But yeah, what and is the guys, average rainfall? I guess what yeah what is like a common it, average rainfall in your area? I mean, I think we're right around 40, 40 average, okay. forty inches. I don't think we're we're close to that. So we had. We had 13 inches of rain right at the first part of uh, – uh, it, it was like in a 48-hour th- or 
yeah, 48 hour period. We had 40, 13 inches of rain at the end of August or first part of August to kind of break some of that drought or we thought it was, we broke the drought. Right. And, uh, we really haven't got any significant rainfall since then but 13 inches is a lot how did your yeah so that's a great like example of the importance of soil health and regenerative uh, management right like how how did your soil do in in that insane amount of rain in such a short period of time and then how did that compare to maybe other ranchers in your area who are more conventional other farmers well so one thing it, I mean, it definitely greened a lot of stuff up. And and as I rested ground and, and fed hay, I was able to produce a bunch of forage. So I was actually feeding hay right at the end of July. Made a trip to Wyoming uh, for the Teton County Fair at the end of July. Um, so when I was gone, I was bale grazing because we had started to just get a little bit of rain in, at the end of July. And I knew that with me being gone and having a outside help come in that managing forage, you know, I was just going to be asking too much to properly manage some forage coming out of what was a drought. So then we got all this rain, 13 inches of rain, first part of August. So I had already started to build some grass back with some rain and not, and not graze it. Then, um, I, uh, so we got all that rain and it just blew up. And so that's kind of what saved my ass for a while and, and still is. So it put a bunch of biomass above ground, um, covered the soil, you know, we grew quite a bit of feed for our cows and have just slowed up our rotation and been, been grazing. So, I mean, every, and how did, how did. I guess other people in your area do with that. Like, did you see like a ton of runoff from that rain? Well, like just yeah, not, not being I mean, absorbed. A bunch of summer type grasses on those places were able to express themselves because they were so overgrazed. Right. So that influx mm. of water, I mean, they probably didn't capture as much as I did. Um, it rained every night for three nights in a row. So like to see it, you couldn't really see it. Like, see it just running off the fields per se. Um, one thing that, uh, one thing that was noticeable, right. That gave everybody a, I think a false sense of hope, right. To where I was already a couple months into my drought culling plan and destocking and no one ever got that far. You know, maybe there was a little bit, some of the more progressive type grazers, they had started calling some cows, but it it kind of you know brought a, a little bit of f- false relief to people, I believe, where they decided they would keep their cows when they probably should have sold, and you know, and and they started buying more feed. You know, they were able to get a second cutting of hay, things like that, um, all from maybe a soil health standpoint, probably wasn't the best idea from a financial standpoint. I mean, we're at a really weird time because cattle right now are record high pricing too. So, and they're continuing to climb. So that's another weird thing that we're going through, right? 
real dry in the Midwest. Uh, a lot of a lot of corn around us didn't do very well. I know some guys that just ended up cutting their corn for and baling it for cows feed. Um, so it's uh, it's a little weird because we're trying to you know it's like everybody's getting real greedy, right? We're trying to buy all this feed so we can feed our cows to to try to pinpoint when the market's going to hit hit its top. Uh, which to me, that doesn't make sense because it's a shoot shot in the dark, right? I mean, we can make some projections like this spring, you know, with, with a good spring, we might, uh, cap the, you know, we might hit market top, but I just, it doesn't make sense for me to feed to what if. So I have a, so I sort of have a question with that too. So in, in your neck of the woods, how is the way you, you farmed regeneratively, been received from from that from your community and other ranchers in the area has it been received pretty positively um or what what are other ranchers doing in your area as well um yeah i don't really talk to many people unless they uh, ask questions <laughs> um i just do i just do my own thing um if people want to stop and ask questions you know so be it but i mean no one's really seeking out in my my like neighbors you know per se my county like what i'm doing uh there's a handful of guys that are are that graze you know um but a lot of and we're different than the west i will say you know like in wyoming you know you've got kind of your winter range and your summer range you know and those are just a couple big pastures right thousands of acres we're a little different in that sense. Um, we have a really good soil and our state has a really good soil and water cost share program. So we do actually have quite a few paddocks. You know, a lot of these farmers do have paddocks and, and maintain, you know, some sort of cattle rotation. But I mean, you know, it could be 20 days in a paddock with with water versus one, which is what I'm at currently. Hey, friend. Thanks for listening. If you really enjoy this podcast, it would be really appreciated if you left us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or subscribe to our content on YouTube. This helps us get to a larger reach and a larger audience to spread this wonderful free education. So I guess, yeah, that's not a surprise to me, right? It's always, I mean, we've talked to Jason Rick, um, who's in Colorado, and he said all his neighbors call him hippie cowboy rancher because he rotates yeah. his beef every day. So it still seems to be the the consensus. So I guess this is a good transition point to maybe how did you get convinced that this was the thing to do? Um, walk us through that, I guess, transformational realization. Yeah. So I'm, I learned by mistake. So I, I did it the hard way. I did it the way conventionally for went to Mizzou, um, learned how to farm, right. Learned how to raise cattle. Um, and I mean, people get mad when I say that, but that's what I did. I learned how to build a ration and apply some uh, prescriptions to different scenarios and look at EPDs and shoot for, goals in your cow herd that you know are acceptable to the feed seed chemical universities etc um it just 
didn't work from a standpoint where I wanted the farm to to make money, right? So got out of Mizzou, thought I was going to farm, took about four months to figure out that it wasn't going to pay me to do it. Um, running a little bit, uh, running close to the same number of cows, maybe a, maybe a few more currently now. Um, but yeah, just the whole, whole mind shift of doing it wrong in my eyes. Right. And constantly fighting, fighting things that I don't, I mean, I fight, I have issues with nature. I understand it though. Right. You spend, I spent so much time and so many farmers spend so much time fighting nature with cows. I mean, it just, it just doesn't have to be. Could we get into some of those practices that you mentioned, the mistakes that you made just in the specifics? Cause I, I'm just genuinely curious. Um, um, and because I find, I find what you just said to be really uh, a powerful statement because I find that that's sort of the way even whether you're a rancher or not, or whether you have any connection to that at all, everyone's sort of fighting nature in the conventional world. And yeah. so it's interesting to talk to someone like you that's realized that you can only get so far doing that. And maybe it can be a net negative. And now you've come to that realization. Now you're doing it a different way, working with nature. And so I'd love for you to sort of unpack just how that came to be, what mistakes you made along that way. And then what was that like huge shift for you? Because we've spoken to people that other ranchers as well, and also people that are homesteading. And there's, you know, a lot of challenges with, with doing it the quote right way too. So yeah. I'm sure we'll get into those down the line, but I'll sort of bring you back for that. Yeah. So, I mean, calving, we'll start with calving, right? Uh, calve February, March Missouri, in Missouri, right? That's as when we talked about our forage growth curve, that is before our forage even starts growing. So that doesn't make sense. Uh, you use nature as a template. You look at buffalo calving on grass, look at deer calving with forage. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole host of other things that come with calving in February. I mean, how many people like February rolls around and they're posting pictures of saving calves because it's snowing? Well, why? You know, why, why do you feel, why, yeah, why is that like that? I'd never understood that to be honest either. Is it just like a programming from um, the USDA or like, no, what is, because, is there any advantage to that? <laughs> Unless you like working in the cold. Cause then and a you lot can of sell it, it 16, 18 months later, right? If it's like, feed uh, lot ready. So, I mean, like a January, February calf on a cow calf operation, typical cow calf operation will be weaned six to eight months later uh okay so timing the market six months or uh, from february so you're looking i mean between august and um august and october you know big runs of cattle hit october um so it's you know just kind of how the system's set up um but October cattle prices are some of the cheapest because there's so many cattle hitting the markets then. So um, out West, it's a little different because, you know, you have range permits where you get on and go off like BLM and federal and school sections and stuff like that. So 
a lot of that may have to do with what your permit says, especially with how rough some of that country is. You're going to have to have a calf big enough to handle kind of the the cattle drives or pushing up into the mountains. Um, And then once you come off the mountain, right, or come out of your summer range, you're going to have to have a calf big enough to go somewhere. So it's just kind of the way the system is is set up in that commodity type market. I mean, cheap cattle going into the, you know, bigger cheap calves in October going into feed yards, right? I mean, that's what the that's what the feed yards want. Right? Cheap feed, cheap cattle. Um so you know, when you start looking at nature from I mean, it you can get rid of, you know, you can change and calve with out of the snow or cold, right? You can go to the green grass and kind of the nice, the nice wet spring weather. I mean, but it has challenges, right, with what I do, you know, moving, moving a herd of cows every day through a gate to a different paddock, right? That isn't necessarily how nature really intended it to work but you know we're trying to do the best we can right a a herd will slowly move right so when we move through a gate to another paddock when we leave that fence open for those cows to go back they do but you know we have to kind of keep moving and eventually we're going to get far enough away in three days for those babies back in a couple paddocks away so i mean we have some pairing up issues to to kind of work out and but that's more of an infrastructure uh play instead of a uh like an issue um i mean a cow set up in a in a kind of a commodity or conventional type system is going to i mean it's going to require more inputs to grow reproduce calve rebreed calve again and then keep repeating that um i mean it's a lot of work through epigenetics you know uh and that happens rather quickly because it's on uh you know from a time a calf is born she can have a calf in two years right so you can make relatively quick generational changes um to epigenetics through increased inputs like feed um what else i mean there's a commodity fertilizer you know synthetic fertilizers on the land um that it's expensive this year you know all those guys that have applied fertilizer in the spring didn't work then went back for a fall application of nitrogen with no rain i mean that's a lot of money wasted wasted right there I'm glad my, I have, you know, I've been working on functional soils. Uh, but it's, you know, I've been working at it for a few years. So I've had to, I mean, it just doesn't, it's not like you switch this way and it's just, it's just easy, right? Soils go through withdrawals. Cows go through grain withdrawals. Can't, the genetics can't handle it. I mean, I'm still you know, kind of, I'm seven years into this kind of real big regenerative switch where I started pulling these uh, inputs. But, but like I said, you know, in 
you kind of alluded in the drought. I mean, I'm seeing just as much grass, grass growth, if not more with zero synthetics in my system where they all had that synthetic bill and it didn't work. So it's changing. I can see it. It's year five and seven have really been uh, eye opening to me on what, like now I'm seeing native warm season plants start to express themselves based off of my grazing management. Yeah, I saw some of that on your on your Instagram, which is really cool. It seems like, you know, once you allow the ecosystem to kind of thrive on its own, it'll build itself back up from the ground. And that's interesting to hear you saying so like five, seven, year five, year seven. So that's kind of what I expect is that a lot of people say, you know, it, it takes a solid few years to really reap the benefits. Yeah. Um, was Most there any hesitation? Yeah, right. yeah. Like, what was your mindset in year two, in year three? Like, were you skeptical? Were you unsure of your direction? And how did you kind of reaffirm that what you're doing was the right path? Well, I guess those first couple of years, it was uh, maybe money and savings, right? No, no feed, no grain, no synthetic fertilizers. Um, implementing, you know, kind of a lot of these cost share programs through soil, Missouri for Soil and Water, uh, NRCS Equip, you know, that kind of helped bridge some of the financial stuff because they were, you know, you can get cost share to implement water, watering tanks for your cows, uh, paddocks, right? Sub, you know, cross fencing. I mean, I've got 60 plus paddocks, 33 well water tanks, you know, all across our landscape here. And so, you know, that definitely helped kind of keep me going, um, you know, and then, but yeah, you had to get creative. You had to, you know, when you were having so many cows not breeding because it wasn't a system they were used to, right? Then you had to go to a difference. You had to, you know, go to a fall breeding or roll them to a fall breeding, tried to capitalize some, some value there. Um, and I actually got rid of my fall herd this year because in nature, you don't see fall calving animals or fall birthing animals. So got rid of my fall herd um, this year, but it was used to kind of pick up a lot of the rollovers, maybe try to add some value there. Um, well, let's see what else. And then, I mean, then you start getting into, you know, four or five, you start seeing the animals that are standouting, you know, that stand out from the, from the rest. And you start seeing certain pastures that start standing out, uh, you know, hair coat on cows, uh, fat cattle, you know, and then good udders, good feet. Um, you see a decrease in, you know, maybe uh, animal sickness and, and things like that. So then you start seeing kind of these little subtle changes that's like, okay, this is working, right? And then it's insect life and mushrooms and deer and turkey and quail and dragonflies and a herd of birds that live with your cows. Uh, but then, 
then also we I added a meat business, right? A lot of the fallout, you know, added value through through the beef program. I mean, just looking at it differently because you have to figure out how to capture value on the stuff that is falling out. And there's some things you just have to cut your losses with, but you have to figure out how to add value to some of that stuff or else, you know, people won't, won't do that. Right. Because you'll get just hit financially. I also had an off farm yeah. job up until last June. So I should throw that Yeah, out. no, that sounds that sounds like a lot of stories that that I've heard. It's like it's truly like you're sort of shifting into the 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 style of of the agriculture because it's not glorious. I mean, like the results are are really great for you know the land and the animals that are naturally occurring and stuff like that. And as you're mentioning, you've seen like growth in wildlife and stuff like that. But it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Probably more tears, maybe a little more blood. Um, and it's like, it's like a lot more work than, than I'm probably willing to do right now, <laughs> but, yeah. but, it, but it also, also though, like it has to be rewarding. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. I mean, just to see a good set of cows functioning with nature. I mean, it is, it's pretty, pretty neat. I mean, insects all around, uh, a pretty good low input set of cows, you know, I've been warmer free for a few years. Don't p- apply any fly spray just so to see the animals that are doing it as is pretty neat. So based on that too, like you were mentioning, like not using like the dewormer and like the fly spray and stuff like that. What, what has that, what, I guess like how much are, how many of the things that, that are used conventionally are maybe unnecessary or maybe, I don't know if detrimental is the right word, but like our unnecessary cost or whatever, because if you're not doing those things, I mean, obviously there's a trade-off maybe, um, but I'd love to know sort of like your thoughts on, on those things. Cause in my mind, like a healthier animal equals a healthier you and then healthier land, hopefully, because like their, their feces are going to be healthier. Like all that's going to work more cohesively. Yeah. I think in our, our part of the world where, the ability for us to stockpile winter feed, I think, uh, like hay, you know, having a bunch of hay on hand per animal where you're feeding four to five bales of hay per cow. I think that's unnecessary in this part of the world. Um, I think, uh, fly, you know, kind of these flies, fly control stuff. I think that's unnecessary. I mean, flies are a huge stressor to cattle, right? Big stressor to cattle. Let's look at genetics. Um, let's look at rotating our cattle. Uh, we, you know, that's one of the biggest costs a lot of farmers pay is, you know, fly spray and ear tags and, you know, and the cost of just stress on cattle and shrinkage due to stress, you know, uh, or lack of weight gain, because because of fly pressure i mean we've been they've been spraying flies on cattle ever since i can remember and we have the same amount of flies every year if not more you know you look at sets of cows they have more the same like why like i i just i've actually always wondered that 
I've always wondered that because, like I said, I grew up in like a really small town. Actually, my history teacher in seventh grade was a part-time teacher, full-time farmer is the way he said it. Mm-hmm. But like, he would he would complain about the fly thing, I swear to us, in class yeah. constantly. Not like, you know, like he can't handle the flies because obviously he was a farmer, but he would like say like, oh, man, we use this crap to like get rid of the flies or whatever, but it doesn't even get rid of the flies. Yeah. So it was really interesting. That's why I was curious. Yeah, so we've been <laughs> spraying flies for, and I told you know told the salesman one day. I'm like, he's like, well, we need to add fly spray, and I just said, well, you said that last year. You know, we've been spraying flies. You know, this was on a place I worked. I used, I've ran a couple, couple different ranches or farms, whatever you want to call them. The last one was 450 cow calf pairs, um, just a couple, you know, 30 minutes away from here. And I was like, we've been spraying flies for years. You know, you put, you put fly, you know, it's called, uh, altacid. It's a insect insecticide, I guess, in the mineral, right? The cows eat it. It kills the larva and the poop. I'm like, we've been, you've been doing that for years. Why (laughs) we have more flies now than we did. Um, and so, but if you look at cattle with heat tolerant genetics, they don't carry a fly. They don't carry fly loads. I can have a black cow with kind of northern genetics, more continental or more, you know, European type genetics, uh, and it'll have a maybe a shaggier hair coat. I mean, it can be the same for like a Nebraska cow. One I, br- you know, if I bring a cow from Nebraska here, you know, has a bigger hair coat, uh, it'll be it could load up with flies, and it could have a cow standing right next to it. And it met, you could count the flies on it, maybe five to 10. So something is, something's there, right? Why does one cow have hundreds and one only has 10 hair coat? So that's interesting. And I guess it goes back to a lot of what we talk about on this show is the environment, you know, you're designed to live in matters yep. at the end 100%. of the day. And I think that goes, yeah, that goes for everything. Us, you know, beef, animals, any livestock. And um, I'm curious then, how do you, how have you sorted that out? Right. Cause where, I guess, what genetics are, are you running and how is that indicative of like a Missouri environment? Cause a lot of, you know, cow cattle obviously are originally like European genetics. So is it trying to like match up a similar type environment? Um, yeah. So I'm to using what more- you have. Yeah, so I'm using more heat tolerant genetics. So, you know, South Pole. Um, I've tried Murray Gray. It's mm, to be determined. I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot because I have a few Murray Gray bulls I'd like to sell. So, if somebody wanted to try the Murray Gray, I have those bulls, but I'm not using them any longer. So I use like Coriani crosses. You know. Things like that. Um, my main deal is uh, kind of a South Pole Coriani type cow, is what I what I mean. That heat tolerance is is key for you because it does. Yeah, because you know, that's get where I'm getting hot in the summer. Yeah, because another thing, right? We, we t- we've talked only about flies. We need those heat tolerant genes in the summertime for foraging, right? They got to get out there in the sun, the heat, the forage. But that's also when I'm breeding. So those cows have to be active in the the breeding season, which is the summer. 
because I want to calve with nature. So that's a, that's a huge reason why we see February, January, February, March calving is because those genetics can't handle a summertime breeding season. So getting into the heat a little too, you see all these like headlines. I think it was earlier this summer or yeah, I think it was in June maybe. And it's like every summer, I feel like at some point that there's just like hundreds of dead cattle and it's like a heat wave and they all died. Um, is that just because it's the wrong, you know, the wrong animal in the, the a hot place or? Well, I mean, I think there's can't deeper, really deeper on things. That per se. I mean, hot and humid are different, right? Those are pretty arid environments, right? So yes. that's going to react. That's going to make those act differently. One thing was that temp, they never got a break, right? Instead mm. of it cooling down at night, the temperature actually spiked, spiked hotter than in the day. So those animals never got a break. Wow. Is how I, is how I understood it. I don't know if that's right or wrong. That's just how I understood it. But I mean, the heat stress is a big deal. I mean, it, it is hard on cattle. So, I mean, yeah, you could maybe make the, the genetics diet, et cetera, but there was, there was a lot of factors at play there. Uh, yeah, I'm just know, curious because it's like you see you see like black Angus, for example, like literally yeah. everywhere. And, you know, to, to mm -hmm. me, I'm like, does it make sense? I'm going to a ranch at like 8,000 feet above elevation in Colorado and there's black Angus here. And then, in you know, 110 degree central Texas, they got plenty of black Angus, too. And I'm like, there's no way. I mean, maybe, but it seems that the cattle are, are more fickle, right? They're not like bison who can literally roam the entire North American continent and thrive. They're not as resilient. So to me, it seems like, yeah, that's something that people are fitting the breed to the end goal of, Hey, this is a popular breed. People will buy it. The price is good instead of fitting, you know, pr prioritizing the environment. Yeah, so certified Angus beef has done a great job at of marketing. Probably one of the best marketing schemes, whatever out there, scheme, whatever you want to call Amen. it. Um from bison roaming, right? The chances of a bison that was grazing at my house grazes at your your two houses and then up to Yellowstone is probably unlikely. So those units or herds probably were more adapted to the areas they grazed in. Um, and we see that in Angus cattle. I mean, uh, you can go up to, you know, North Dakota and bring bulls down to fescue country. Might not work. You can take bulls from Texas up. You know, you can, there's some that'll hit and miss. Um, one thing we haven't. So, I mean, but typically, yeah, I mean, kind of where those breeds originated, you would want to take those, is it access that runs lengthways around the world, right? So kind of that same, uh, is it latitudinal? Or what yeah, latitudes north and south, yeah. So, so longitudinal, right? So wherever Europe is, you want to follow that kind of around, right? It's kind of how that should be matching up. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the, the way I saw it anyway for like the bison, it's like, you know, they're going to be, you know, maybe they, they migrate more, more south where, 
it's warmer in the winter, but yeah, there might've, you know, concentrations. And obviously if they were in like Mexico and Texas, like that herd probably wasn't going to be in Canada either, but it, it makes sense to me. And, and overall, I think, yeah, I, I think people, yeah, really, I, I don't understand the Angus thing. It's really hilarious. Like, and it's that's yeah, the only I mean, breed that like most people know. So um, it was just purely marketing. I mean, there's, there's, Steak side, you know, to make certified Angus beef, I think you have to have uh, uh, your steaks basically have to be a certain, your ribeyes have to be a certain area, has to have a certain degree of marbling, uh, be a certain color, etc. cetera. Uh, one, of, one of my black cows that's half Coriani, half South Pole, maybe a touch of Murray Gray, whatever you want, if, it, if, if it's black, which is possible, and it has the same marbling, same ribeye area. You know, fits all. It could, it'll sell a certified Angus beef. I mean, so there's just because it's certified Angus beef doesn't mean it's a certified Angus beef. Doesn't mean it's actual Angus. I guess I should say. Um, one That's thing I will add that fescue. You know, so we're. Fescue is our main forage here. It's a introduced cool season and it's got an endophyte. So it's got a toxin in it that causes blood cells to constrict, which makes it hard for our animals to regulate body temperature. So it, what is it? Vasoconstricts, right? And then, so people spend money on red pepper right? Or cayenne pepper, something that vasodilates those blood cells, you know, for those, it, it causes that animal to basically lose some of the ability for it to control its body temperature, right? So you see feet and, and it's also constricting, right? So you can see tails fall off. You can see bad feet because of their lack of blood flow, uh, death, uh, et cetera. So, you know, people spend quite a bit of money on that or lose money on that, you know, animal death, uh, cayenne pepper, different things in the mineral. So focusing on the, the solution is dilution, right? More, more variety of plants. Um, and, you know, some genetics are heat tolerant genetics kind of help with that heat dissipation. I'm not saying it's a cure-all. But definitely solution and genetics can help combat some of those negative effects we see from grazing fescue in the summertime. Um, so, but it stockpiles very well, and that's the main reason we have it. So that would allow us to graze year round. So just wanted to Interesting. throw that How often do you move cattle around uh, with, with your operation? Uh, I move daily, at least. So, okay. That makes a lot of sense. I was just curious. I, I figured it was something like that. Cause that seems to be uh, pretty universal. Like you got to move them quite a bit. Um, yeah. but that also makes it, I think that oh, no, I what you're saying? I'll, I'll say it's universal, right. To like, just to say, okay, I move cows daily. The main thing you want to start asking is how much, how rest, how much rest are your pastures receiving? Cause that's what matters. So mm -hmm. I might move daily, I might move three times a day, but my rest. But how many do time, you have? Yeah. What? 
exactly how many paddocks do you have total kind well, of to be able see, to I can split yeah. those up those paddocks up with polywire so I could take a I could take mm. one of my paddocks and get five moves out of it so the the key the key to regenerative grazing is is animal impact and rest so I get I rest some in the springtime I might only have 30 days of rest per paddock where I just got done grazing some for the third time this year that had 120 days of rest. So, uh, you know, I took a 30 day graze, a 45 day graze, and then it was 120 day graze, you know, or, or about. So that's, that's the key. Rest is, rest is the key to, to soil health trampling forage production. And you're just determining that based on, you know, the, the seasons and the forage quality in that range between like, you know, 30 to 120. Are you interested in 100% grass-fed, grass-finished bison meat? I'm excited to be a partner with Falls Family Ranches. Based in Wyoming, Falls Family Ranches is raising high-quality bison meat the way nature intended. As a native large ruminant of North America, Bison is one of the most nutrient-dense foods you can consume. If you're interested in trying out their bison boxes, use code TRISTAN, T-R-I-S-T-A-N, 10, for 10% off your first order. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. it's, well, there's a lot going there that judges that, um, context being one, but yeah, I mean what how hard the grazing was where you know if i'm trying to get year-round grazing um if i want to rest one graze one really hard to try to get some warm season expression and then i want to follow that with kind of like a late may graze with with rest you know get those cool seasons knocked back create an environment for those warm seasons to be able to to express themselves and then rest yes so it, I mean, it's more than just like that, you know, a prescription, right? It's all based off of observation and, and then, uh, then absorbing what you observed and then applying it. Observational science. Yeah, that's the key. So I, I'm curious, have you like measured organic matter content in the soil? Like, how are you kind of gauging uh, the progression of your soil health and thus your stocking density ability. Um, and, and how has that kind of progressed in the past? Yeah. Seven uh, years. I do it all by eye. <laughs> I, I don't really take tests. Um, I figured, really, I figured actually <laughs> probably really bad, but I mean, I can see changes in paddocks, right. And, and you, I, I do keep track of my pasture moves. Um, no, which, plants they're going to eat at what times and make moves according to that 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 indicates quite a bit of what i do kind of uh early summer grazing you know i'll look up diff, you know different plants that aren't palatable at different times of the year and graze those accordingly um but just some of the transformations that have been seen i see it every day my parents live in wyoming my dad's been coming to the farm since it was purchased right in the 70s so you know if he shows up and says he can see changes right from where it's been and where we're you know i mean that's that's all you know you really need to know is if somebody else can come in and see it's making changes i can see from a stocking rate one thing i 
I do see is as I'm getting more and more plant diversity and less straight monocrop or, you know, very few diverse plants, my ability to graze year round is shrinking because I don't have that fescue base like I started with. So, uh, so trying to manage for that is, uh, is something that is going to be coming in the future. I, I, I know, but I guess that's, you know, might be more buying two bales of hay instead of one, you know, but then I could stock more cows per se. So, yeah, that all makes sense. I mean, there's certain con concessions that have to be made, you know, by seasonal as as weather patterns change over time and stuff like that. Yeah. And I'm not super familiar with like entirely the 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 way the Midwest uh, weather patterns have been like the last decade or so, because um, yeah. I haven't lived there in a long time. But I'm assuming you guys have been in somewhat of a drought, kind of like the rest of the West. Yeah, um, we had a D3 drought in our county um, this summer. They say that the weather is moving east, right? So the weather we're having now is kind of what they were seeing out in Kansas versus, you know, some of the weather in Wyoming was kind of more West Coast type. So they say it's moving. The Kind of that pattern is sh shifting. So, Like overall or just like for the past like year? Because... I, I um, kind of think overall is what I've heard. Really? I don't know if that's true or not. Interesting. Well, it's been a heck, heck of a lot more wet than it usually is out here. So the way I see it is I feel like it comes and goes in these cycles, right? It was like pretty yeah. damn dry out west for, I don't know, probably three to five years. And then, you know, we just had the snowiest winter on record and probably one of the rainiest summers. You know, it kind of just continued. And I think – this upcoming winter is, is going to be similar. And the last time was like in the eighties and it was like three years in a row that it was this kind of insane for snow. So mm -hmm. yeah, I, I feel like it's these cycles, but yeah, it's interesting because you kind of have to adapt on, on the fly, but getting back yeah. to that, you know, you have lower fescue and, and you're unable to make it through the winter. That seems kind of like this transitional period still going on because I don't know. The way I think about it is if you do have that natural biodiversity, wouldn't it be easier to make it through the winter, but maybe haven't, you know, reached like a high enough percentage. I'm just trying to think about oh, that in a way. It should, you know? right, in theory, get easier with. Yeah. The The main thing is fescue, you know, with the endophyte, it puts a waxy coating on that helps maintain food value through the winter which tests higher yeah, yeah. than most hay. So, and it outcompetes our, our native cool seasons from a growing standpoint in the spring. So, you know, but it can outcompete our native warm seasons in the summer. So we're getting this kind of switch because we were a true mixed grass prairie here, probably maybe a little more on the, hev the heavier warm season grass prairie. So, just trying to juggle kind of this next step, right? But that's that's part of, I mean, on the on the edge, the cutting edge of this regenerative process, right? I mean, that's just part of learning that we don't know much about. 
Was there, what are your biggest sources of like education and, and inspiration? I know uh, what Greg Judy is out there. Have you attended like his workshops? I've or, done, yeah. Um, I Alan saw Savory. Um, yeah, I've watched, when I first got started, I watched Greg Judy. Uh, did a pasture walk with him a couple years ago, four years or so ago. Just saw him at the South Pole Field Day in Alabama. Um, my main people I go to, Gabe Brown, Alan Williams, Understanding Ag, Soil Health Academy, going to be who I refer people to. I just hosted a, under, a Soil Health or an Understanding Ag event with uh, the Missouri DNR uh, first part of September. So those will be the guys that I kind of go to first um, for like referring somebody to like get their feet wet and start. I mean, now, you know, text groups, I'm in a couple text group pasture walks are some of the some of the best deals. I mean, some of the best grazers are right here in Missouri. Some of the best grazers in the country, I'd say, are right here in Missouri. Uh, So just get in close with them. I mean. They're good. Yeah, there's good Jake's grazing. been telling me that. Yeah, Jake's been telling me that for for quite some time, and it's that's cool that you're you know you've worked with the the DNR. So I'm curious, you know, how do you see this kind of movement progressing, right? Because it's this big thing, right? You know, like White Oak Pastures, Will Harris on Joe Rogan. It's like there's a lot of momentum here, but it's still mm-hmm. like feel like the momentum is really in the talk. Uh, you know, there's more yeah. people moving to regenerative ag, but there's more talk than action, probably because it's easier to talk about how great regenerative agriculture is than actually going out and implementing these practices. And, you know, there's so many ranchers just, you know, they don't want to change and, and things like that. And then there's, yeah, just massive operations that just don't care. So I'm curious how you see it kind of progressing. And do you think, you know, eventually, like, do you think it's progressing fast enough and how do we continue actually making change that sticks? Yeah, I mean, slow organic growth, right, is kind of what I'm doing from my meat business standpoint. Um, just looking at other meat businesses that are pr- pursuing this regenerative route, calling their products regenerative. There's a couple big ones. Uh, and uh, I don't, you know, they're more using that word to sell product i mean you can look at their Green, greenwashing yeah you can look at their shit on uh, instagram and i can tell you that it's that's a, a messed up system right or that's a bold-faced lie i mean we can talk off camera and i can you know we can <laughs> i mean you can, it, you know you can you can tell right and then there's people with the pricing and stuff of like i know what you gave for that cow right and it's not you know, and, and you're just gouging the consumer, absolute gouging. So that's going to sour a bunch of people for the rest of us. And that's the kind of shit that pisses me off. Um, and from the next generation, so from can kind of the conventional or big guys switching, I mean, I think it's, I'm looking at it, it's when you talk to them about it or kind of address them, right, they take it as a personal attack because they're three to five generations, six generations in, right? So that completely shuts them down. So it's more, uh, you know, just kind of lead by example. If they want to ask questions, I mean, 
that's that's kind of how I, the approach I've I've been taking now because I mean yeah I mean for me to go and tell somebody they're doing it wrong and he's a sixth generation farmer it's uh I mean like who am I to tell him that it's you know they there's probably a lack of understanding of soil function and you know things like that but I mean, that starts with the seed feed chemical companies and universities, that lack of understanding. I mean, they didn't talk about regenerative agriculture while I was there, you know. Um, and then from, uh, let's see, kind of the policy type stuff, I mean, or just from an end consumer, right? It's the people that want to make a difference, in what they're feeding their family and and how they want to go about their lives but i mean i was on the barefoot sprinter podcast uh, i don't know if you follow him uh on instagram and he you know we were you know i kind of brought up you know like the people that want to eat healthy but you know buy regenerative products drive a tesla astroturf their backyard and you know eat tofu three nights of the week i mean that's a crock that's a crock of nonsense like that doesn't do anybody good so i mean well, that's a lot of good points because like I, the only thing i was really going to add to that was like it's sort of like what tristan was saying that the greenwashing of it kind of ruins it for the people that are really trying to bring about you know, yeah. positive change and and stuff like that and that that seems to happen in every community almost as like a byproduct of business or yeah. the opportunity for business, which is unfortunate, um, super unfortunate. I mean, it happens in the health space as well with just, you know, health topic stuff and the functional space is a mess and all this crazy stuff, which is um, another deep dive. But I guess one of the things that I would ask kind of based on that is like, what would be like, because in, in my mind, it's like you were doing in a conventional way, we're getting this output that we've been used to for so long, but it has this negative consequence on the soil, on the plant life, on the animal life. Um, on the well-being of the people that eat the meat, all that stuff. So it kind of goes down this uh, this chain. But what are the consequences of of not bringing about better practices as a whole, even if it takes, you know, it's going to take time, obviously, in education, which I think you really brought a light to as being really the lack, the key lack indicator for most people. They just, they don't know what they don't know. And they mm-hmm. obviously have all these generations of experience. And now all of a sudden you're saying it's it's backwards. And so it's sort of a paradigm shift for people that takes time, obviously. But in my mind, it's like, okay, what, what are the, what's the opposite end of not bringing more people on board and saying this movement doesn't have success because we are destroying the soil and various things. And so how can we make that better? Yeah. I mean, that's just loss of soil, functioning soil, right? Um, Nitrogen pollution in our water, dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico, all do because of a lack of soil function, right? And a lack of knowledge of it, right? You can go up to Iowa, you know, and get cost share on waterways and terraces, right, to to plant a field, right? They don't talk about soil function in that. You're not, you know, then they're going to put apply a, a synthetic nitrogen in these tile, in these terrace fields that have, uh, you know, kind of a pipe that takes it to the stream, right? They're decreasing soil erosion. Well, what are they doing? When we get those big, heavy rains, 
no growing plants, no living roots on that soil to take up that nitrogen. That's going right into that tile, going right to the stream. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, I don't know. It's such a lack of information from the top down, you know, it's the people and but it's policy, right? It's all rode out in these, in these government deals, which, you know, for the, you know, they provide great, great stuff, but it has to be taken to the next level. So now when I'm dealing with them, you know, I mean, the money is there to be utilized, right? Every, all the taxpayers pay it. Uh, you know, in Missouri, some of the state cost share comes from like the tax for the parks and stuff to maintain our parks. And, you know, one-tenth of 1%. I used to work at the government uh, for about a year um, doing grazing systems and things like that. So, I mean, the money's there. So, but what I've been finding is I'm progressing in my regenerative knowledge that when I go to utilize some of these deals, it's very basic, right? And the people, you know, that are, I'm going to, to sign up, they don't really understand how it all supposed to function. And so now I make them write down what I want to do and agree upon because I'm going to, because, you know, like when, let's say, we're going to do a, we're doing, I'm doing a giant native warm season planting. Uh, there's, you know, 500 plus dollars an acre available through the government for me to plant that seed. Um, their criteria is three species of grass, 13 species of forbs. Um, that's the criteria, right? That's the, like, and that's on the, the highest tier, right? There's a lower tier with two species of grass and like 10 species or eight species. But so like, I'm going to them with like six different species of grass, you know, 30 something species of forbs, right? And now I've got to tell them like, this is what I'm doing. You need to write that down because I am going, you know, so it's just such a, a lack of knowledge, you know, and then that has to go up the chain of commands. It's like, well, this guy makes it really difficult. And I'm like, this guy is going back to nature, right? So, I mean, it all starts with education. I mean, that's from a consumer standpoint. That's from the policy standpoint, farmer standpoint. I mean, but we seems like farmers rely on uh, the salesman to tell us what to do. Which is, I think which it's is this really whole, strange. Yeah, it's this whole paradigm that we're in, right? Like it's it's unfortunate that you can't really trust the information, the recommendations that any body that's supposed to be the expert is really laying out for you. And it's uh, yeah. you have to go learn it on your own. And for a while, yeah, you know, you're working your ass off in a ranch. And then, you know, imagine you're in the 60s, 70s, and then some salesman comes around, hey, this will, you know, make your forage grow a lot better. And you're like, all yes, right, give me some of that, opinion. you know, I'm working my ass off. So it's not a uh, you know, it's not the fault of the individual. It's yeah, the system that kind of led to this. And, and now we've been so ingrained. And that that goes for, you know, health, the healthcare system, you know, diet recommendations, yeah. the whole nine yards, right? It's it's no different. It's the same mind virus. But you got to take that personal responsibility like you have to go and be like, hey, maybe this isn't 
the right way to do it. And since you're, you know, you're younger, you're not like sixth generation, like you're saying, just completely yeah. stubborn in what you do, you're, you're open to it. And it's like, shit, I have to change this or else it's not going to work. I'm not going to be a rancher. Yeah. So I have two giant unfair advantages. One, a thousand acre land base that touches, right? That is very rare for here. That is pretty awesome. That's very rare for, you know, any guy starting out. Um, the next unfair advantage, I don't have a generation above me telling me what can and can't work. That is probably, I mean, those two are going to be right at the top for, for this. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like, it's just literally just the lack of lack of understanding. I mean, I mean, it's consumers in the food pyramid. I mean, we could talk about, you know, I mean, beef, like, I mean, that's up there with junk food, right? I mean, on some food pyramids, I mean, it's, you know, and so then we have that teaching our doctors, right? And then the pharmacist, it's like, it's so screwed up. And yeah, just, it's, it's all backwards. So I'm, I'm curious, just how, how do you market your your meat, right? Because it is this dilemma. And, and you're saying, you know, obviously, you are doing it the right way. Um, do you sell mostly locally? Have you like made the yeah. connections through Instagram by being transparent? Uh, what does that look like? Because I think that's a big, you know, marketing is, you know, you have to become a part-time marketer and, and salesman to uh, actually run a successful ranch nowadays that's direct-to-consumer because obviously you need to push it out there and that's something, that's another job, another hat you need to wear and it's a big challenge, probably the biggest challenge, right, for people who yeah. do want to do it the right way. So I'm curious, you know, learnings in that area, how you figure that out because on, I don't know, like, you know, you say, of course, you know, the people who drive Teslas and like these yuppie people are going to be the ones more likely to pay more for higher quality meat, um, even though they don't understand all the other nonsense they do. Because um, <laughs> it's hard, man. In rural America, people don't give a shit about 100% grass fed meat. That's for general. No, like here in Wyoming, right. they don't they don't care. Yeah. They actually hate it. They don't like yeah. that. They're like, I don't like the taste of that grain yep. like grain finished literally i bought a cow from someone and the grass 100 percent grass fed was was cheaper and i've never you know you don't see that in whole foods like that doesn't exist yeah, that's but a rarity it, it, it was hilarious because in the local market just people and she only finished like 30 days on grain it wasn't like this whole ordeal and the rest was on pasture but i was i was like shocked but yeah, yeah people don't like 100 percent grass fed in in rural areas and maybe it's you know we talk i've talked to a lot of ranchers and it seems like yeah it's it's just harder obviously for for cattle to put on that fat to become to that level that people are so used to from the program to feel out beef so yeah. i guess a how do you market it and then what what are you doing to really make that 100 percent grass-fed experience of eating a ribeye similar to what people are used to if you're even trying to do that yeah, so I mean, with finishing beeves, right? It's it's time. So the the people probably that are anti grass fed, chances are they've just had a very bad eating experience or experiences, which is a lot of people. Um, 
And I've had some people say, we're just going to eat grass fed because we know it's healthier, even though we don't like the flavor. And I'm like, that's not how that works. Like, and so, I mean, I've produced some, like when I was first starting out, I made mistakes. I lost customers over bad stuff. And, and, uh, I mean, I haven't gotten them back. I've, but so it's just a time deal. You know, it's the people that are, you know, wanting to rush the process of making good grass finished beef. It's, it just, it's not a process that can be rushed. And a lot of it is because we have the processing date, you know, we got to take it. And it's just like reschedule. I mean, if it's not ready, the eating experience is going to be terrible. Um, so then the, let's see, you asked about customers, right? Yeah, well, I guess before then, let's stay on the, you know, duration because, you know, someone we talked about with AJ Richards and he's saying, you know, after a certain, you know, time span, right? Like the frame of the animal is not getting bigger. So if you just wait long enough, like you're saying, um, you will pack on fat that is 100% grass fed. That's delicious. And that's why folks, you know, that AJ works with in Wyoming here, like RC Carter doing it the right way. And how do you have a set time, like two years minimum, or are you kind of gauging oh, that based yeah. on the forage completely? Uh, I mean, it's animal specific. I mean, like a steer, he'll continue to grow frame for a while. So, I mean, they're gonna, but most of the grass finish coming out, kind of coming out of our part of the country is uh, going to be right around that 30 to 36 months. I mean, but I mean, some of the stuff I do is, is a lot older than that. And it's really? probably some of the best stuff I've ever had. Um, yeah. Their genetics as uh, one of Jake Stakes producer, uh, Ry uh, Riley at Diamond Eye. I mean, she's doing uh, steers at 24 months. I mean, but they've got the genetics and breeding behind their herd to do it. Um, so that's fascinating because, you know, feedlot B, if we're like, just to give people context, like there's no feedlot system, there's no grain finish system really mm -hmm. that's doing like 24 months even. And you're talking like 30 to 36, like that's yeah, a so, long time. Yeah. Feedlot beeves can knock them out in 15 months, right? 15 to 18 months on the long, yep. 18 being some of the long ones. Problem is difference is the fit, the diet that feedlot steer eats the night before he goes in the next day. If he would, let's say they just gave him a free pass to live and continue to live eating that same diet until he dies. He's, <laughs> his life is cut short tremendously by that diet, right? I mean, he can't. Where if you took a steer at 24 months or 36 months, on a grass finished diet and just like you said did the same way to him you can just continue to eat this diet as long as you live i mean the son of a buck will probably outlive you you know so that's uh i mean so there's that but no that makes a lot of sense we actually i remember speaking now to um uh stefan van fleet um about 
we were basically we we're talking about these these ratios in in fat differences and the makeup of the fat and the makeup of the amino acids and how they were pretty significantly different in grass fed grass finished to grain fed rain finished um, yep. sources and it, it does make me think because it's like you're basically raising um, obese animals basically in, a, in like a standard system you're basically just trying to puff them up and so like therefore you get like lower quality probably nutrient density and that's kind of what's come out in the research which i find really fascinating and like you said yeah the life of the animal is also hindered so it's sort of like really a net benefit all around for for grass-fed grass finish because you're giving um the animal the highest quality life that it probably could have um yeah. until until slaughter and then you're getting the highest quality meat because of that so it, it makes total sense it also makes sense like all the differences that have to be made based on you know, seasonal stuff. I mean, that's just the way nature works. It's like not every year is exactly the same. And I feel like we've built systems that have become efficient, but it's been propped up on, like you said, fighting nature. And that's yeah. because you need to produce X. I mean, they, everyone has a bottom line. That's really the reason for having to prop it up the way it is. Yeah. I mean, there was the idea of producing enough food to feed the world, right? a growing population. I mean, but it's like, what do we feed the world? I mean, is it boxed food with pills and vitamins? Um, you brought up omega six to three, I'll just, or three to six, whatever. So my ratio on my ground is 1.841 to one. So, so Damn. yeah. And, or, and it's 1.843 to one for our ancestral blend. I might have that backwards, but it is, it's those two ratios. I think it's, uh, you know, for our ground and ancestral blend. So, and now to give people doing... context there, I think the average like grass fed beef is like a hundred percent grass fed is like four to one. And then the average like grain fed or grain finished beef is, could be up at 10 to one. So yeah. this is like, that's like yeah. the best of the best. Yeah. You know? Uh, salmon is 2.2 to one just to put that out there. So, and now there you go. Uh, hopefully restocking, but I do a nitrate nitrite free snack stick now that can ship in the lower forty eight. So get that right to your door. That's incredible. Yeah, that's awesome. If I was in Missouri, like I would one hundred percent buy your buy your beef, but I got to support local local Wyoming nope, here. I but I'll, I'll definitely it. try that's, it. I don't. You know, that's the thing. It's like we're all in this together. Support. Yes, your, you know, Build your relationship with your farmer. And, uh, you, you know, if maybe I'll get out to Wyoming with another re Horseman Cattle Co. 2.0, right? And then I'll be your neighbor, too. But, Hell, yeah. <laughs> but that's, I mean, that's kind of the thing that gets so lost, right, with with this regenerative movement. You know, there's some ulti ultimate regenerative guys, right, the purists, right, that all they want to do is attack the guys that aren't doing it right. I mean, we're all in this together uh we all have to work together um i want you know and i get this from when i say the food pyramid's messed up you know where meat is you know the little box or whatever and bread and cereal and pastas are down below and then i get beef from uh or you know then i get crap from a conventional grain or grain-fed beef guy I'm like, dude, I want them to eat more beef. Why why aren't you on board with that? Why do you like <laughs> it's because I want them to 
eat more beef, be healthier. I want them to be out like, you know, it's so, so messed up with kind of this, you know, we all can't seem to work together, which is how it all is going to change. Yeah. And I guess going back to, so did you get other nutrient profiles tested or is it just the omega six to three? And is that part of how you've effectively marketed this? And what is the percentage like you're selling locally in Missouri versus out of state? I guess that's a, a question that I'm really curious to, to understand based on what I have. I don't know Missouri that well, but I feel like I could guess the perspective of how many people really, really appreciate like the stuff you're doing compared yeah, to, so, you know, somewhere in Salt Lake City or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't sell very much beef to my county. I have to drive 60 minutes to get to basically my first customer in St. Louis. I deliver every Tuesday to St. Louis, home deliver every Tuesday to St. Louis. Uh, only beef that goes out of state would be through Jake's Steaks. And uh, I think in the last 24 beefs I've processed, he's taken two. So uh, a lot is just going to homes in St. Louis, um, just families focused on healthy eating a lot of them are uh, you know there's a good portion of them that kind of the vegan or ex-vegetarian wanting to incorporate healthy grass-fed grass-finished um with our ancestral blend you know it's kind of the organ meats get that in their system i've heard i've never tried other people but i've heard uh mine some of the best so if not the best and I've had a lot of people tell me that, so I don't, I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't really eat the organ blend. So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's just organic growth, word of mouth. My, I have a couple wholesale accounts. One's a vegetable farm right outside St. Louis, 10 acres, Lucky Dog Farm. Uh, they do organic vegetables, have some egg layers, pastured pork, um, and meat birds, you know, with a whole, you know, 10 high tunnels. They move a lot of my beef. They've been, they've brought a ton of customers to me. Um, so, and then I've got just, you know, people that buy in ground beef in bulk for their family. I mean, that's, that's the most economical way to get into the regenerative meat. And that's kind of where I'm headed with my business ground beef ancestral blend snack sticks uh that's a nitrate nitrite free snack stick made with uh sea salt well shoot next time i'm going through missouri i'll have to like get something i have i have friends that live out that way and yep. so I, i'm around i'm usually around there like once a year or something like that has been sort of the for like you know a little bit of time week or two yep. but it's a lot of fun i like coming back out to the midwest but actually one question that we were thinking about earlier back to sort of when you, we were talking about um, the fleece spray and all that stuff that you've re sort of removed from your animals. Like how have you dealt with um, like, like things like vaccines and, and vaccine mandates and regulations for, for cattle and stuff like that? Like how has that been navigated? Yeah. So I do do a res a killed respiratory vaccine to my cows, uh, cows and calves, um, no warmers. And then I do a black leg tetanus. So tetanus, metal you know you get a tetanus shot and black leg is in our soil from 
and it's pretty prevalent, prevalent, and it, I mean, basically it just, it'll kill them, kill a calf pretty easily. So just one shot a year, meat program stuff doesn't, uh, doesn't, doesn't get vaccinated, uh, antibiotic free, um, you know, if one does get sick, we do treat it, right? I mean, it's inhumane not to. So depending on the severity of the thing, of what it was treated for, or how, you know, if it had to be treated multiple times, we'll determine what the outcome of it is. Typically, it gets sold through a sale barn. Uh, no, and then in terms and- of like... Yeah, I was going to, you, you're about to say it is, I'm assuming you don't do that, but are you MRNA, fearful? No. Yeah. Are you of fearful of regulation? I, I, I don't, I mean, I have never even, I didn't even know it was going to be mandated. So I'm no, not- no, not saying it's going to, but like, you know, they threaten a lot of things like Bill Gates is like pushing, like, this is the most important thing, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, a, a lot of people have, have spoken out against it. So I, I guess yeah, I'm just and concerned. And then I saw, you know, the other the other thing that's been recently in the legislation is these uh, what these uh, electronic tags and, and colors, right? Like mandating that. Yep. Yep. For cattle. Yeah. The EIDs are starting to do some of that. So basically, it's just a way to track where the cow came from or when it entered the sale barn system. I mean, every once in a while, I'll I'll see some cows that'll have that. Some vets are putting them in. Um, I don't know too much about them. I mean, you can put, like, I could buy them and put them in if I wanted to, you know, scan every time a cow came across a, a scale to see how much it weight it gained and stuff. I don't, but, um, so. Yeah, it's... I think they what they claim that they want to push this bill because it's you know helpful for preventing you know disease or, or whatever um, for the health of the cattle. But then everybody else is like, well, this could be used for carbon tracking and and footprint and, and where the cattle are going. And, um, and then it it's a cost. So the small producer like yourself potentially um, could be you know not able to afford these things if they are mandated it's additional costs whereas you know the big players have have no problem the jbs's of the world so i i was happy to see that yeah i was i was just following thomas massey and the representative um from wyoming actually that were were pushing back on this and it was it was pretty cool yeah that is neat um i mean you touched on bill gates i mean a guy doesn't understand soil health, <laughs> right? Vegetarian, buying up all this farm ground to grow monocrops, you know, heavy spray. Even if you wanted to take it organic, heavy tillage. I mean, organics and tillage without is just hand-in-hand hand without proper soil function. Animal integration is how you get proper soil function and really can make organic systems work. Doubt the vegetarian's going to add animals to his organic system if he goes that way. But I mean, that's yeah, just, I think that's the fundamental thoughts. key. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, you're right, right? And you see what he's doing in like Africa, and I've I wrote about that in my book, and it's just ridiculous that that's even like allowed. But you know, it comes back to what your principles are, and it seems like how you thought about things. 
what is nature doing? You know, what's naturally going on here? Of course, there's ruminants. Of course, there's this biodiverse, you know, grass species and and other animals. And and it does list goes on and on. And if you try and and fight nature, like you said brilliantly, I think you're going to be fighting a losing battle for a long time. So we need to start thinking everybody in terms of your health, in terms of the health of an ecosystem of livestock. What is nature designed us to do in this environment, in this ecosystem? And and then we might start to thrive, but there's so much momentum against it through just a centralized nonsense that's going on. But here we are, you know, we're talking about it. People are changing their mind and, and I think it's good. You're leading by example. So it's really awesome. But yeah, that's that's kind of the summary here for me and the important Yeah, takeaways. I mean, I have definitely in the last probably six months noticed a giant change in in things like gyms putting snack sticks in in you know in the gym instead of protein powders and crap like that, you know. Hell yeah. So and I've had people, you know, trainers and stuff reach out to me. Right, I'm working with two different people both you know gym train lift you know and it's beef right it was broccoli chicken rice when i started a couple of years ago oh now yeah it's, now it's beef i mean and it's stuff like what you guys do talk about it right are active about it you know that's that's powerful now it's not you know some guy talk you know me posting a picture of a cow <laughs> means like of course i want you to eat beef right but it's but it's guys like yourself, you know, that taking the time to learn and teach. I mean, that's the thing. It all comes back to education. So regenerative agriculture, grass-fed beef, grass-finished beef, whatever you want to say, I mean, that comes back to education, farming practices. To produce regeneratively raised grass-fed beef, um, to increase soil function, right, it's time, rest. You can't, the skeptical, the skepticism of a regenerative ranch, you know, in year two is like, okay, right? I didn't start selling beef till I was year four or five, right? So, like, you know, I know people that won't sell, you know, they're doing great job grazing, you know, only a year or two in, you know, they're cha- they're making changes, right? Seeing seeing firsthand changes, but they're not making label claims, right? Saying they're regenerative. It's those guys that that just don't know what they're doing are gonna ruin it for for us. So low time preference mindset right there, man. And you're you're putting in the proof of work in the soil, having that patience. That's you know what it's all about, I think can't rush nature and uh, no, those who push rush, off that yeah and if you push off that short-term gratification across the board in your life you're going to be doing better than 99 percent of people so august yeah thanks for sharing that wisdom this has been awesome no, i would I love to check out your ranch at some point in the future i'm due uh jake's yeah. going to drag me out there at some point for uh for a prairie or a pasture walk and yeah that'd be awesome Let's but where it. can people find you where can people find your spectacular beef, which just by looking at your website, I'm, I'm getting very hungry. So <laughs> let well, them know. Uh, I'm on Instagram, August Horstman. Uh, 
Horstman Cattle Co. H O R S T M A N N Cattle Co. And then I actually do a podcast called Grazed America, where I just talk to ranchers doing cool things. Um, kind of been a break, been pretty busy season trying to push, you know, get some beeves delivered to people. Then I'm on Facebook and Insta, uh, Facebook under those three names. Shoot me a friend request, follow. Uh, and then www.horstemancattleco.com. Currently only deliver to St. Louis, looking to expand to Missouri. Um, but, you know, shoot me a DM. I can, I can ship the snack sticks or shelf stable, throw them in a bag, send them to you, and just sell me the money. I just just got my Zelle working today. I'm, I'm way behind on uh, electronic money transfer stuff. I'm old school. There you go. Well, you need to get on the Bitcoin train because I think, yeah, the, the principles are aligned very well, but we could <laughs> we could table table that discussion. Uh, yeah, I would like to talk folks, to you about that at some point. You know, what's the, we didn't even cover, get there, but, you know, why why Bitcoin and, and beef? And, you know, we can save that for a different day too. Oh, yeah. We well, could chat offline as well. I'm happy to, but it's the same principles, man. It's low time preference thinking. It's... Uh, decentralization right now not, not giving it up to a centralized uh entity and yeah kind of uh program scarcity so real money real value low time preference mindset it's all aligned with nature yep. nature is the only truly decentralized network maybe bitcoin's there too and <laughs> that's why it makes sense but folks yep. if you're listening in from missouri you have literally no excuse to not buy this man's beef if i was in missouri i would be buying his beef multiple times a year so check them out thanks for coming on august it's been a pleasure i hey, appreciate you guys and thanks for thanks for doing this i mean this is this is what makes changes so i really appreciate your time thanks for having me let's do it again hell yeah thanks everybody for tuning in we'll see you next time